Now my pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Um, Susan Bookbinder. Uh, she's well known to those of us in uh, San Francisco, but really around the country for her really her, her, her tireless efforts in uh, trying to uh, develop new strategies from uh, vaccines at one point to other strategies to sort of uh, uh, really get to zero um, through various interventions. And so we've asked Dr. Bookbinder to sort of summarize uh, really the state of the uh, our knowledge uh, now on um, uh, preventing HIV infection and can uh, ARVs uh, alone cure the epidemic, if not the disease. Thank you. Great. Thanks. Well, thank you so much, and it's wonderful to be here. Um, I am going to be talking about, uh, we've got these two really powerful new tools. It's one powerful new tool. It's antiretrovirals, but used for positives to prevent their risk of transmitting to HIV uninfected patients and uh, for HIV negatives taking pre-exposure prophylaxis. So I'm going to talk a little bit about how we might think about um, is this going to be enough to get us to zero new infections and zero HIV-associated deaths. Um, I have participated in research studies that have had um, drug donated uh, in PrEP studies, and I am speaking on behalf of myself and not official policy of the San Francisco Department of Public Health. Um, the goal here is to identify populations at greatest HIV risk in the U.S. and San Francisco. Uh, so I am going to focus in on San Francisco at times and then take a couple steps back and look at the U.S. epidemic um, to talk about the relative effectiveness of various prevention strategies and then hopefully to give you some information that you can use in counseling your patients about um, what to do in terms of reducing either transmission or HIV acquisition. So. I needed a framework to think this through, and um, this is the framework that I came up with. In order to get to a population level uh, of zero new infections and zero HIV deaths, we need to be uh, uh, approaching the right population, right? So that's the epidemiology of infection. We need to take the, what we know about highly efficacious strategies from clinical trials and apply them in communities. So that's the effectiveness. We need to know if we can scale up these strategies because it's great if we have strategies, but if they're not um, able to be scaled, then it's not going to have a population level impact. So I'm calling that coverage. And then we need to know if people want to use them because these antiretrovirals only work if people not only take them, but take them regularly and persist in taking them. So that's adherence and persistence. So that's the outline of the talk then. Epi effectiveness, coverage, and adherence or persistence. And because I'm going to be summarizing a variety of studies within each, I'll summarize um, at the end of each of these sections what we've sort of talked about. So um, men who have sex with men are the only population in the United States in whom new diagnoses are actually increasing. So that's, that's a really uh, disturbing piece of information, and particularly young men and men of color um, are at particular risk. These are data from San Francisco. Um, this line here shows the number of new diagnoses, and it's been steadily declining over 10 years. Um, numbers of deaths have also gone down, and because of that, uh, we're seeing an increase in the prevalence in the number of people living with HIV infection in San Francisco. But um, it's a somewhat different epidemic than what we see nationally, in that 86% uh, are men who have sex with men in San Francisco. Um, 11% of them are also people who inject drugs. 6% are injection drug users. And nationally, it's 20% who, 
who are women, but in San Francisco, we've only had in 2014 six trans women and 14 cis women, or women who were identified as female and um, self at birth and also self-identify as female. So we have very few infections in women, which is great, um, but we shouldn't forget about uh, needing to address the epidemic in women as well. We also see these racial and ethnic disparities. Um, the good news is that in San Francisco, we're seeing a substantial decline in both the number of new diagnoses in white and black uh, individuals in the city, not seeing a substantial change in Latino or other races. But if you take a look at the San Francisco demographics um, and looking particularly at men per 100,000 population, you can see that for black men, we have almost twice the rate per 100,000 population as white men. So even though there are a low number, our population is only 6% African-American. And we also see a great excess in numbers of infections in Latino men. So we really need to work on this issue of disparities in reaching the right populations. So this is my first question that goes to age. And nationally, um, which w have the greatest number of new diagnoses? So the 13 to 24 year olds have a greater number of infections than the 50 plus year olds or two, the 50-plus-year-olds had a greater number of new infections or new diagnoses than the 13 to 24-year-olds, or they're about equal, or four, I don't know. Please answer. Okay, and um, that is what you would think, right? That's what we keep hearing about, is that the younger people have more diagnoses. In fact, there are about an equivalent number of new diagnoses in the under 24 as there are in the 50 and over. Now, some of these are undeniably late diagnoses, but people are getting infected in their 50s. And so what that tells us is that we need to offer testing and prevention strategies for all age groups. And then if you look at the, you all know about the Gardner Cascade, um, looking at people who are diagnosed, in care, getting antiretrovirals and fully virally suppressed. And so this was a question that CDC asked, what do we know then about where are the transmissions coming from? Where are people in the, in the cascade um, when they transmit? And their estimate is that 30% of the new, the new transmissions are happening from people who are undiagnosed, but that 60% are coming from people who are diagnosed but not retained in care. So this is a critical part of the um, cascade that we need to deal with, and then a much smaller proportion who have been prescribed antiretroviral therapy and are at least um, partially virally suppressed. So to summarize the epidemiology component of this, Men who have sex with men are the major population at risk in San Francisco and nationally. Um, substance use also is driving the epidemic, not just injection drug use, but I think, as many know, uh, stimulants and opiates. Um, racial and ethnic disparities remain, and while we're making improvements in San Francisco nationally, they're actually worsening. Um, we need to pay attention to all risk groups, but it's true that youth have some particular vulnerabilities and um, We'll hear more about that this afternoon. And uh, we really need to get people in care and staying in care because that has implications both for their own health as well as for HIV prevention. So let's talk about effectiveness now. And, and what we're saying is let's step out of the clinical trials 
so for each, I'm going to present what the clinical trials show, but then step out and say, what do we know in real-world settings? So this was a groundbreaking study, HPTN052, and I think there's an ACTG number, so I apologize that I didn't put that in. It's often referred to as HPTN052, but there, uh, it was a joint project between HPTN and ACTG in which over 1,700 serodiscordant couples, one's positive, one's negative, globally, 97% of whom were heterosexual, were randomized either to get immediate antiretroviral therapy. This is before um, this was recommended, so when CD4 counts were 350 to 550, or delay antiretroviral therapy until um, national guidelines were met. And one thing that I want to point out is that, like all studies in serodiscordant couples, a third a quarter to a third of the infections in the negative people come from outside of that partnership. So remember that when you're counseling uh, patients who are negative, who are in a serodiscordant relationship where their positive partner is virally suppressed, you need to know if they have other partners as well because uh, every study that I'm aware of, a quarter to a third are coming from outside of the partnership. But for those that came from within the partnership, 27 of the 28 came from people who were not on antiretroviral therapy, and the, the one infection here was a recent initiation of antiretroviral therapy. So the estimate was 96% reduction in new infections if you treat um, somebody who's infected. But what do we know from other real-world studies? There's a study called Opposites Attract that was presented last year at CROI that has not found any new infections in men who have sex with men, which is great news. But they don't have enough data yet to really say definitively this is 0%. It could be as high as 4% overall and 6.5% if the individual is engaging in receptive anal sex. There's the Partners PrEP study in which heterosexual couples in Africa were given uh, tenofovir alone, tenofovir imtricitabine, or placebo. This is, was one of the pivotal trials that led to licensure um, of uh, PrEP. And what they did is they, they went back and looked at the placebo arm and said, okay, in the placebo arm, if people started, because we offered antiretroviral treatment to the positive partner, did it protect? And what they found is that there really was no substantial reduction in HIV incidence in the first six months of treatment, that after six months there was a substantial reduction. And so again, what needs to be considered is that somebody needs to be fully virally suppressed and cleared virus from their uh, genital secretions um, before they're actually going to not be prevented, what they're not going to transmit. And so in thinking about this, I think some people think, oh, well, my partner just started on antiretroviral, so we're good to go. And that um, is likely not the case. And then this was sobering data also presented at CROI 2015, um, 14,000 patients in six clinics uh, in six cities in the United States. And they looked at how many had a viral load of greater than 1,500? Because in the original um, paper out of uh, um, Uganda that showed an increased risk of transmission with increased viral load, 1,500, below 1,500 was the threshold where they did not see any transmissions. And half of the patients, and these are patients in care who are being seen, um, over half had one or more viral loads greater than 1,500. And 23% of the follow-up time, people were over 1,500. So again, in thinking about this, I think that one of the things that we know is happening now is that people are hooking up on the internet and saying, well, my partner's positive and virally suppressed, but there needs to be a little more probing to know if they're truly virally suppressed and persistently virally suppressed. 
So this is the same slide that um, Eric showed. Uh, I just drew a red line here, and the ones above are the ones that showed significant efficacy. These are the two vaginal ring studies. Um, there is one vaccine study um, that we are pursuing uh, this approach as well as other approaches. So vaccine studies are alive and well, uh, including in San Francisco. But if you look at the ones that are most highly efficacious, they're PrEP studies, these two in men who have sex with men, 86% reduction in new infections, 75% reduction in new infections when uh, tenofovir and tricitabine were uh, co-formulated, were given uh, to these individuals. So highly efficacious in clinical trials. What do we know in real life? We know that the data are excellent, but they're not perfect. Um, so in Kaiser San Francisco and Steve Follinsby, uh, started this program, which was really, is really the leading edge of providing PrEP in clinical settings, found a way to provide uh, PrEP for individuals who are Kaiser patients in a streamlined way, lots of sexually transmitted infections, but no HIV transmissions or acquisitions. Um, a PrEP demo project in San Francisco, Miami, and, and um, uh, Washington, D.C., half had STIs on follow-up, two breakthrough infections, but both of them, the last time that they uh, probably took their meds was more than four weeks earlier. And then um, there have been a couple of episodes of breakthroughs on uh, daily tenofovir, two of them when uh, patients were being treated for hepatitis B, they weren't using it for PrEP, and one in somebody who really was on daily uh, tenofovir amtricitabine uh, from Canada that was presented at CROI this year. So we believe that it can happen, but it's pretty rare. So it's a very good um, approach. I'm not going to go through the details here, but just to say that tenofovir concentrates more heavily in rectal tissue than female genital tract tissue, and is, um, there are fewer uh, competing metabolites in rectal tissue than in female vaginal tissue. Um, so that probably accounts for at least part of the reason that PrEP is more effective in men, has been more effective in general in men than women. Women probably need to take it every day. Men probably need to take it more than three times a week to get maximal protection, but you can miss doses here and there. So I'm going to talk about intermittent PrEP um, in the next section. And also, uh, tenofovir sticks around for a longer period of time in the rectal tissue than in the, um, genital, uh, the female genital tract tissue. So I'm going to ask you another question, which is, what do you tell your patients who are in serodiscordant relationships about condoms? Do you say they don't need to use them if the positive partner is fully virally suppressed and the negative partner is on PrEP? Or do you say they don't need to use them if the positive partner is fully virally suppressed or the negative partner is on PrEP? Or do you say condoms actually work better than PrEP in preventing infection? Or do you say, you know what, with these electronic medical records, I, I don't have time to talk to my patients about sex. Oh. Sorry, I guess I pressed it twice. I didn't let everybody respond. Um, so what we have here is condoms, the half say condoms work better, and a quarter, almost a quarter each uh, say, 5% uh, are honest here, about um, the challenges of charting, um, but say either they need both or they need one or the other. And 
These are some data from meta-analyses of multiple studies that suggest that condom effectiveness in real-world settings is less than 80%. So, in fact, PrEP may be more effective than condoms. Now, condoms work against sexually transmitted infections, and they have a real role in that regard, and we are seeing cases of ocular syphilis, and, you know, we have some real issues, but that's why it's so critical to do PrEP, to do STI screening when people are being uh, administered PrEP because we know that condoms also fail. They break, they slip off, and most importantly, they're not used all the time. So summary of the effectiveness data, antiretrovirals used as treatment and as PrEP are highly effective, but there are some caveats. You need to take the, the meds. For PrEP, um, probably women need to be very consistent in taking daily PrEP with current, with current agents, and nothing's 100% protective, and that condoms are effective for preventing sexually transmitted infections. But my personal belief um, is that they should never, that that should never be an excuse for not providing PrEP because you're concerned that patients won't um, use condoms in the same way that I wouldn't withhold a statin because I'm afraid my patients are going to eat more ice cream. So, um, so uh, coverage of antiretrovirals and PrEP. So how much of the population are we reaching? Um, so tell me, where do you think the drop-off is biggest in the cascade? Is it in the um, diagnosis, the initial diagnosis of patients? Is it in the ones who are diagnosed, um, who are actually linked to and in care? Is it among those who are linked to care who are on antiretrovirals? Or is it the, the group who are virally suppressed who are on antiretrovirals? So what part of the cascade is the steepest drop-off? Okay, so um, ha about half of you got this right. There's the, that is the steepest part of the drop-off, is getting people not just linked to care, because they are getting linked to care, but then they're dropping out of care right away. And so these are the data from nas national data that suggests that now 30% of HIV-positive patients are fully virally suppressed. These are data from San Francisco that are calculated in the same way. We're estimating 60% here. It's clear that these are underestimates and that some people move out of jurisdiction and so you don't really know what's going on with them. But the biggest drop-off is clearly this first step and it's getting people into care and keeping them in care. So that is a, a critical part of our getting to zero effort in San Francisco. We tried to create cascades that are sort of similar for PrEP to see what coverage is like here. And these are some data from Atlanta. Um, most of them are kind of uh, taken from a variety of different sources uh, that are national rather than local. But there, when all is said and done, when they talk about being, you have to be aware, you have to have access to healthcare, you have to get a prescription from your provider, and then adhere to it, that they're saying about 15% are actually protected. And here's what we know in San Francisco. So we know that 85% of men who have sex with men, so this is men who have sex with men, from several surveys actually know about PrEP. And then we know from those surveys that about 20% report either taking PrEP currently or in the last year, and 85% of those appear to be adherent. So we came up with the same magical number of 16%. What we don't know is where are we getting this drop-off? Is it in providers offering PrEP? Because we certainly hear stories of, of providers saying, we're not going to give you PrEP because you might use condoms less frequently, um, or because you're not in a, a monogamous serodiscordant relationship, which probably isn't where you're going to get your 
greatest population level effect. Um, half of those in the PrEP demo project took PrEP. That was several years ago. I think uh, interest is greater now. And we've hired a bunch of navigators in the city to try to address this issue of people not knowing how to navigate the insurance and Gilead assistance programs and such to actually access PrEP. So um, we hope to really raise this number, but because it, it's clear that at this point, we're not gonna have the kind of population level impact that we need um, if we've only got 16% coverage. One of the things that we wanna be sure of is that we're actually hitting the right population. So in blue are the new diagnoses, and then in red are the data we have from Kaiser in terms of demographics, and in green from the San Francisco Department of Public Health uh, primary care clinics. And we're doing pretty well, but we're still underrepresenting um, blacks, Latinos, and Asian Pacific Islanders. Um, and we're mostly getting men, which is, again, where our epidemic is. So we need, to, we need to reach these underserved communities to be sure that we're getting PrEP. So the summary of coverage is that we have a long way to go to get adequate coverage, both for, for treatment, where we're doing somewhat better, and for PrEP, which is newer, but we really need to get out into the community. We don't know yet about that middle part of the cascade, but we are collecting data, we have, uh, and so we hope to have data before too long. And we really need to pay attention to coverage within subgroups, because it's not enough to just say we have this total number of people on uh, PrEP. We need to be sure that we're getting it to the people who are riskiest. So let's talk about adherence and persistence, and here's where I'm gonna also talk some about um, intermittent PrEP. These are some data um, that Terry Blaschke published in 2011, but it just shows, and I think again, we all know this, that for many diseases, if you look at not just adherence, but are people actually staying on the drug, that it, that, that drops over time, and that that's true across the board. So this is not something unique to either antiretroviral treatment or to pre-exposure prophylaxis. Uh, the green is uh, HIV meds. So one of the questions that's been asked is, would people find it easier to take PrEP intermittently? Would you, maybe people don't, maybe people drop off from PrEP because they don't need it anymore, or, or, you know, I guess that is it. Um, or maybe they, um, maybe they would be more willing to take it if they could take it just around the times that they're at risk. So these are data from the San Francisco demonstration project that took place at City Clinic, our municipal sexually transmitted disease clinic. And these top bars are more, four to seven doses a week, which is where we think protective levels um, exist. And you can see that we actually had really high adherence, that at four weeks, 93% of those who came in had protected drug levels, and at 48 weeks, 87% of those tested had protective drug levels. So that's really great. But what we have to remember is that we've got an increasing number of people in this darker color who didn't come in for a visit. And so overall, 72% were taking PrEP at protective levels at one year, which is still pretty darn good. But what we don't know is, were people dropping off because they no longer needed PrEP, or was it because they were having problems with their insurance, or was it because other issues came up in their lives? So I'm gonna do this little animation, because when we talk about intermittent PrEP, we're really talking about a number of different things. So fixed or time-based dosing, the hearts represent um, sex, hopefully with a little love. Um, and uh, you've got uh, in, fixed, Dosing is just, it, regardless of when you're having sex, you're just taking the, the drug on a regular basis. And right now the recommendation is for daily. Um, Event-based dosing or on-demand prep is taking it around the time of 
having sex. So maybe it just maybe it's just better to take it right before and right after. And uh, Ipergay did that, um, uh, one of the efficacy studies that showed 86% efficacy, and so we'll talk about that. There also was an approach that, well, gee, maybe if you dose it less frequently, but then you can boost it with a post-sex, post-coital dosing, um, maybe that would be good. And then there's periodic dosing, where people have uh, real seasons of risk, just periods of risk. It may be that they go on vacation, it may be um, that they're in a particular relationship or between relationships, and you take PrEP to cover during those periods of time. So what do we know about so-called seasons of risk? And these are, we don't know much, actually. These are data from um, the MAX study in Men Who Have Sex With Men and MAX. And what they did is they just, over an eight-year period, marked in red if they were in a high-risk interval where they were reporting um, condomless sex that might have put them at risk, and blue was when they were in a lower-risk interval. And you can see that 14% were pretty much risky for the majority of the time and would need to be on consistent PrEP during that time. 23%, though, had kind of episodes of, of risk and maybe could get away with some intermittent PrEP. And then 63% had very low levels of risk. That probably doesn't represent the general MSM population because this is a very specialized group that's being followed um, in the MAX cohort. This is the regimen that was used in Ipergay. Two doses, two to 24 hours before sex. Then one dose, 24 hours later, and another dose, 48 hours later. And this showed 86% efficacy, which is great. The issue is that they don't have really detailed sexual history data. They just asked about the last episode. And on average, men were having at least one episode of sex a week. So they were taking four doses a week, which is what we say is basically equivalent to daily dosing. So we, I, my feeling about it is we don't really know if intermittent PrEP works, and they are doing an extension follow-on study. I do believe that they're collecting more behavioral data, so hopefully we'll have some information, but I don't think that the results of Ipergay really tell us yet whether this is an effective strategy. In addition, you need to, if you're going to do that, you need to know that you're going to have sex to take the, the pre-dose, right? And we did a, an online survey in 1,000 men um, and asked, was your last, just your last episode, was that planned or unplanned? About half were planned and about half were unplanned. But of the planned, we asked, well, how far ahead did you plan? And, you know, 17%, it was minutes, and 45% uh, it was hours. So it may not be enough pre-planning for intermittent prep to work. Um, then there's, there are a number of other studies that also suggest there may be some challenges with intermittent PrEP. This is a study published just this year. 46% um, had unplanned condomless anal sex in the past three months. So that, those individuals probably are not going to benefit from um, on-demand PrEP. It's a study I nicknamed it the Hope Springs Eternal Study. It's not actually called that. Um, there were 92 men who have sex with men who were asked every day, do you think you're going to have sex tomorrow? with a casual partner. And what they found was that people were really good at figuring out when they weren't going to have sex, but not so good at figuring out when they were going to have sex. And so the recommendation was skip your daily dose only if there's a 0% chance that you'll have sex tomorrow. So people were hopeful, but they weren't, they weren't very good at, at judging this. So again, it might be challenging. And then there's like malaria prophylaxis type of prep. And I've had patients who have said, you know, I don't, I don't get out much, I work really hard, but when I go on vacation, I really go on vacation. And 
26% reported condomless anal sex with new partners when they're on vacation. So at the very least, we should be asking our HIV negative partners who may be at risk, are you going on vacation? And when you go on vacation, are you potentially at risk of HIV acquisition and get people prepped for those periods of time? So um, HPTN 067 looked at daily, on-demand, and twice-weekly plus postcoital dosing in women and men who have sex with men. And what they found is that adherence was much better in daily. And I think it's just hard for people, particularly the postcoital dose, was very difficult for people to remember to take or to be able to take because they weren't at home or there were other, other challenges. Um, so what do we know then about pericoital dosing? Well, we know that two hours before seems to be less protective than 24 hours before, which is again this issue of if you're not, if you're going on vacation, that's one thing, but if you're trying to do it on a day-to-day -day basis, that's gonna be a little bit more challenging. Um, the, the drug sticks around for a longer period of time in the rectal tissue, um, although other studies, this is from one study, other studies do suggest that, since we don't really know, because these are all in vitro challenge studies, they're not telling us whether this is actually gonna work, that the recommendation should be a week before and four weeks after your last exposure. And people are, are being safe by saying the four weeks after, but particularly for women, to get the same level of protection as those two doses after sex, because these tissue challenge models were based on hypergay, you'd need at least nine daily doses afterwards. So again, it just disappears from female genital tract much more quickly. So if women are having vaginal sex, they're gonna really need to be on daily prep. So, summary. Substantial drop-off in med use for most medications. There's high persistence in some subgroups, but it's lower in others, and we need to be reassessing patients to see if they go off of it, if that's an appropriate decision. Periodic prep is certainly useful for some, and the pericoidal or on-demand uh, dosing has a lot of challenges in planning, in adherence, and in the pharmacodynamics. And so I'm gonna end here with um, how do we put this all together, and uh, this is a modeling study in men who have sex with men in the UK, and this suggests that you need both to get optimal, uh, you need both treatment and PrEP to get optimal coverage, and you may get some synergies. Um, and what's kind of interesting is that here they suggested that coverage is more important than adherence. So if you draw this line here, you're actually protecting more people with 20% coverage, 20% efficacy, meaning they're not taking it all the time, but 100% coverage than you are if you've got 25% coverage and 100% efficacy. So we shouldn't sweat too much that our, our patients, particularly men who have sex with men, are not taking this on a daily basis. We should encourage it. We don't want people becoming infected and then going back on, uh, uh, on PrEP and becoming resistant. But um, what we really need to do is get many more people on PrEP. And um, with that, I just want to thank people from whom I got slides, and I'm happy to take questions. Great. That's a very nice comprehensive uh, overview as well as, so um, is San Francisco going to get to zero? Yes, eventually. No, I think that um, we're, we're working on being the first jurisdiction to get to zero. Um, it's aspirational. It's hard. Um, and looking at the data and really digging down into who is it we're losing, and I've been going through death certificates and seeing all of the drug overdoses. Um, 
There's a lot of non-HIV-related deaths. And then there are some HIV-related deaths from people who are just out of the system, and it's very hard to keep them in. And PrEP, it's sobering because we've seen this huge spike, in part based on Kaiser, but we're just not getting enough people on PrEP yet. So we have a lot of work to do. And I would welcome anyone's involvement in Getting to Zero. Go onto our website, gettingtozerosf.org, uh, and please join us and come to meetings and join committees, and we're all trying to work on this together. Good, and so I gather from your comments that one of the earlier questions was about the explosion of STIs and all that, and you mentioned ocular syphilis. Um, I know that at Kaiser we had several cases of acute hep C. Um, so I'm gathering that you're recommending, whether it's daily or intermittent or whatever, event-driven, that condoms are also um, still recommend recommended. So I think that we need to have um, realistic conversations with our patients because some are, are not going to use condoms. Um, we need to just tell them that you're, not, you're still going to be uh, at risk for, for uh, sexually transmitted infections. There is interest in uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis for STIs, but for the time being, um, I think that it's important to encourage them, but to insist that we get every three months screening for sexually transmitted infections and that we get them not based on symptoms because we've got very high rates of rectal, GC, and chlamydia um, that are totally asymptomatic. Uh, a question saying that some of the earlier uh, concerns around PrEP would be the emergence of resistance yes. to the components yes. of the two-drug regimen. And so could you comment on that both maybe locally yes. but also nationally and maybe internationally? Yes. So in people who are failing first-line treatment, there is quite a bit of tenofovir resistance. And um, in developed countries or high-income countries, it appears to be about 20%, but it's close to, it's 55 to 60% in Africa. So we may have a real problem there, but we don't know yet whether or not we do. Um, but it's something to be cautious about, and it's why we need treatment, treatment, treatment for people who are infected and to make sure that we are actually virally suppressing them because it's going to help them as well as the community. We've not seen resistance yet, but um, it's still pretty early to tell. Steve, this is Joe. I, I, I can't let that go. Sorry. Uh, the, the study from Africa is in patients yes. who have failed, failed. therapy. Yes. yes. So if 5% of people are failing therapy, 60% yes. of those failing therapy have tenofovir resistance. So, so we need to interpret that very carefully. Yes, okay? yes. and I'm sorry I that I didn't, I didn't clarify that. Yeah, so right. that's among, I, among people who are failing. Um, it's just something that we need to kind of keep an eye on. But I think that the issue is that's in Africa where we don't even have yet treatment um, fully scaled up, and we really need to focus on treatment and PrEP, particularly for those most vulnerable populations, including women. Um, I, what I would say also is uh, my biggest concern is intermittent PrEP. It's not treatment, and it's not treatment failure. It's about intermittent PrEP. And intermittent PrEP, if you aren't judging appropriately when you might be at risk, and you become infected in between doses, and then you start on PrEP, you will develop resistance because it's not effective treatment. So that's why it's really important, and what we tell patients is, if you've been off of PrEP for more than seven days, come back in and get another test before you start up again, and never start up again if you've got symptoms of a flu-like illness. Okay, I think that's an important um, comment that made me want to elaborate on that in terms of, of how do we counsel our patients that they've been off, and then so when they come back in after more than seven days off, how do you screen 
those individuals um, at that point in time? Yes. So what we do is we um, first get a good uh, history to be sure that they don't have any um, vague, nonspecific viral sy symptoms because um, that can predict uh, acute infection. We find out about when their most recent exposures were. And then you're walking this fine line. You want to start prep um, if you can, because if you wait, if you keep waiting, you're going to keep trying to chase that window period. So we get fourth generation um, antibody tests, which are antigen antibody, which are, are pretty good. And then we back that up with either a pooled RNA or a viral load. In San Francisco, that's what um, we do and what we recommend. I guess, you know, just as a show of hands, how many people have access to the fourth generation uh, you know, majority? So this is being done essentially across the, the board. So and so what we would do is we'd start people even, um, you know, with a, we'd start people if they have a negative test, but with very close follow-up to be sure that they, in fact, are uninfected. Um, but again, just warning your patients not to just start and stop whenever they feel like it because they could have gotten infected in the interim and not know it. And so the question, the, there's a question about how has the PrEP protocol evolved through the Samsung City Clinics. Uh, initially, it was felt that there was a fair amount of intensity in terms of follow-up and all that. Have, have you changed the protocol so they're not as intense? Um, I can speak on, I'm pretty much up to date on the Kaiser San Francisco experience, which was much more intense follow-up than the City Clinic, but maybe you want to comment on sure. that. Sure. So what we do is we follow up in a month. Um, and then we follow up every three months. And at each of those, we get HIV testing and uh, STI screening. One of the things that we're looking at is out in the community clinics, are we, who are we losing? And the concern is that we, we're terrible at doing just refills for, for other drug, for other, um, other diseases. And people then go to the pharmacy and they find out, oh, their insurance changed and it's no longer covered. And how many of you all spend all of your time doing, you know, prior authorizations and med refills because they've changed from one drug to another on formulary? Um, so it's a, it's a real issue. And so trying to find a way to give people some um, wiggle room in case they can't get in exactly on time, but not prescribing three months with three refills and we'll see in a year. Um, you know, trying to find that balance. So we've got lots of different models where pharmacists are doing the refills, um, where nurses, nursing staff are doing the refills and panel management. But I think doing some panel management is really important because people are starting PrEP or they're given a prescription for PrEP and either they never pick it up or they're not staying on it. There's a question that is, I think, driven by the fact that there's been some discussion in the community that the city clinic workers are just not discussing condoms at all. Is that true or um, if, you, some, if a client says, no, I'm not interested, then they just drop it and it never gets brought up again? Or how do you so, discuss condoms? Yeah, I think that it's, it's kind of interesting because the city clinic staff were probably among the most reluctant to start PrEP because they see all the STIs and they're very concerned about the STIs and they're seeing now the consequences. So I believe that the staff there are counseling patients about condoms. We also need to be realistic and if we, if we shame people and say, you know, I'm not going to give you this unless you agree to use condoms, then we're missing the very population that we hope to get. So I think, again, just more information is better and saying, look, here's what your risk is of HIV. But there are these issues about, um, particularly syphilis, um, you know, for women, gonorrhea and chlamydia and PID and sterility is, is an issue. But for everyone, STIs are an issue. So you really need to be screened regularly. 
And it's better if you can use condoms, but we also have to recognize not everybody can use condoms. Sometimes they're the receptive partner and sometimes um, they lose their erections. So it was regular screening every three months? Every, we do every three months. And there was some data presented at CROI this year that if you screen less than every three months, you're missing a ton of asymptomatic STIs. Okay. And um, the question is about the experience in San Francisco using PrEP in youth under 18. Do you have, have you looked at that population? We are actually getting ready to launch a um, demonstration project with the support of Gilead um, because we can't, they're in this catch-22. If they don't want to use their parents' insurance, they don't qualify for any of the assistance programs because this is an um, off-label indication for PrEP. Um, so what we're trying to do is, is get to the under, uh, the under 18 because we do see infections in that group and clearly some of the younger infections are actually happening before, before kids are 18. And I, there's a question asking, you know, in terms of trying to quantify the increased risk of an asymptomatic STI in terms of HIV transmission. Um, you know, obviously you want to treat, you know, prevent sterility and ocular, et cetera, et cetera. But um, is there, can you measure the risk or discuss the risk? Yes. So, I mean, we believe that it increases the risk, but what I can say is that at Kaiser, with a huge number of STIs, and in San Francisco City Clinic, with a huge number of STIs, we didn't see HIV transmission. There were the two in, in San Francisco, but they weren't taking PrEP recently. Um, so it is definitely something to consider, and theoretically, it should increase risk, but we haven't seen that empirically yet. Again, I want to thank you for Thanks. your review. There are some additional questions that Dr. Bookrunner will be around for a few minutes. Um, afterwards, I think, to there's answer. A, and there's a break, I guess, now, right? So, yeah, yes. So, so there'll be a break, but to. first of all, I have some demographic ah. questions. So I want to thank Dr. Bookbinder uh, for her review.